This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Let's pray together. Loving Father, as we seek to follow your beloved Son, our Good Shepherd, we pray that your Holy Spirit would increase in us faith, hope, and love as we follow him in this world that you love. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. What does it look like to follow Jesus, the Good Shepherd, in our culture? This is not an easy question to answer. But this is the question of how the church should relate to culture. And in every generation, in every culture, Christians are called to the hard work of figuring this out, of figuring out what does it look like to follow Jesus in their time and in their place. And it's hard because there are lots of times and there are lots of places. To paraphrase theologian Russell Moore, the story of the church is that of an insignificant little flock, and at different times, it's the story of a culture-shaping force. Our story is one of persecution, but it's also one of proliferation. It's a story of worshiping in catacombs and of worshiping in cathedrals. And so given our varied experiences and given how complex culture and cultures are, we can't be one-dimensional as we think about how we should relate to culture. Dr. Moore says, if we only ever think of ourselves as a minority, we'll be tempted to isolation. And if we only ever think of ourselves as a kingdom, we'll be tempted to triumphalism. Different times and different places call for different ways of engaging. There's no one size fits all answer to the perennial question, how should we relate to culture? Now that being said, I think the book of 1 Peter does give us some principles, some timeless principles that can be put into practice in every time and in every place, including our own. And so we're gonna look at this passage from 1 Peter together this morning. And I wanna start with some background to the letter so that we can understand it. Well, it was written by Peter, 1 Peter, and it was written in the year 63 AD. And Peter wrote this letter from Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire. And he's writing to the church, he's writing to Christians who are spread through the region of Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey. And the church that he was writing to, the church at the time, was very small and it was vulnerable. But the church was growing. And because it was growing, Christians started to experience hostility and harassment from some of their neighbors, from the outside culture. As one commentator puts it, Christians were beginning to be marginalized for their faith, but they weren't yet martyred for it. They were marginalized, but they weren't martyred. But marginalization isn't a joke. The social pressure that they felt 
in Asia Minor tempted many to compromise their faith and tempted some to quit Jesus altogether. And so Peter hears about this, and as a pastor, as an apostle, he writes this letter to the church, and he writes to them to breathe courage into their hearts, to stabilize their faith, and to instruct them how they can live faithfully in the midst of their culture in Asia Minor. And of course, there are many differences between the first century culture and ours, but I think the cultural location of this first century church is similar to our own, at least in some ways. The first century church was on the slow rise and it was on their way to cultural influence that they began to feel the pressure to conform and to compromise. We're a little bit different in the 21st century, at least in the West. The American church is not on the rise, we're on the decline. And as we're being pushed out of cultural influence, I think we're feeling a lot of the same pressures. We're heading in different directions, but we still, I think, find ourselves in a similar cultural place. And Peter is speaking into this situation. And before we look at what he has to say to us, I feel like I need to address the massive elephant in our passage, slavery. We need to talk about slavery. I feel like if we don't talk about this up front, we're just not going to be able to hear any of the things that Peter wants to say to us today. Now, many people have read and do read this passage, and they come away thinking that because Peter is regulating the behavior of Christian slaves, that the Bible is either ambiguous about slavery, or far worse, the Bible endorses slavery. And I can see why people think that, but I don't think that's what the Bible is doing. Now, full disclosure, I really wish Peter would have made it more clear. I wish he would have been more explicit that slavery is evil. I wish he would have just said slavery is wrong. If I had my way, I would have liked Peter to add a little postscript at the conclusion of his letter. And this is how the letter ends. I have written this short letter to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God, stand fast in it. Your sister church in Rome sends you greetings. Peace to all who are in Christ. P.S. Slavery is evil. That's what I wish Peter would have written. But there's good reason why he didn't write this, I think. What we need to understand is that Peter was writing in the first century. And in the first century, slavery was absolutely assumed. A functioning society without slaves was virtually unimaginable. I couldn't imagine it. And the fact is, this has been true for most of human history. In various forms, slavery has been part of most every society. And by the way, that's still true today. There are more people enslaved today than in any other time in human history. About as far back as human history goes, slavery has been one of the assumed building blocks of human culture. And this was especially true for Roman culture, for the Roman Empire. Rome was built on the back of slaves. And while this is true, I think it may be more accurate to say that Roman society was built on a hierarchical system that slavery fit into. 
It was a system of submission and reciprocity, and slavery was one of the linchpins. You see, there was an order to Roman society, and the household, the family unit, was the model for that order. In this patriarchal society, society, everyone had their place. Wives submitted to husbands, children to parents, slaves to masters. And the rules for how everyone in society should act in their place were spelled out for all Romans in Roman household codes. And the Romans believed that this system, this system, this system of hierarchy, was ordained by the gods. As far as Rome was concerned, the flourishing of society depended on this structure, on this order. If you mess with this order, Rome will fall. And so anyone who messed with it was eventually crushed. This is the culture that Peter is speaking into. And the church is starting to feel the heat from this culture. And Peter wants to dial down the temperature. And so he writes to these churches and he tells them how to live faithfully in Roman society. And he writes his own version of the Roman household code. And so in a way, he is deferring to Roman culture. But at the same time, and this is really important, at the same time, Peter also begins to dismantle the scaffolding of Roman patriarchy. In verse 17, Peter says, honor the emperor. And you know the Romans would have loved that. But he also says, honor everyone. And this is radical, whether it's the emperor or a slave, every person is on the same level. Every person deserves the same treatment, honor. And Peter also describes the Christian slaves as free people people who are beloved, people who are redeemed, people who can be like the Lord Jesus. And by instructing them to follow Jesus, Peter is rejecting the Roman custom that slaves must worship the gods of their masters. It's subtle, but when you see it, I think it becomes clear that Peter is planting the seeds that will flatten the Roman hierarchy. And so while it is true that Peter does not outright denounce slavery, he is undermining its very foundations in this letter. Okay, so that was a very long introduction to the text, but I thought it was important that we cover that so that we might actually be able to hear what Peter has to say to us. So that's sort of part one of the sermon, and what comes next will be part two. What I wanna do now is build on what I've just shared, and with the time left, I want to walk through this passage of 1 Peter with an eye to how we should engage culture. And what I want us to see is that Peter doesn't give us a cultural engagement playbook. Peter answers four questions for us. Peter answers four questions that guide faithful living in any and every culture. And the first question that Peter answers is who? Who are we? And this is the question of identity. And by my count, this passage includes almost a dozen identity markers, but I wanna focus on two of them. In verse 11, Peter describes Christians as aliens and exiles. 
We are aliens and we are exiles. And these, by the way, are the same two words that Abraham uses to describe himself back in Genesis 23. As children of Abraham, as God's people, we have always been aliens and exiles. So what does this mean? Well, to borrow from theologian Stanley Hauerwas, it means that we are resident aliens. We're resident aliens. It means we live here, but we're not from here. It means we have a kind of dual citizenship. We're citizens of our culture here, but our primary citizenship is the kingdom of God, and that is where our true allegiance lies. And we shouldn't take this identity too individualistically. As resident aliens, we form a community. And I appreciate how Hauerwas describes this community. He says, we are a community where the values of home, the kingdom, are reiterated and passed on to the young. We are a community, we are a place where the distinctive language and lifestyle of the resident aliens are lovingly nurtured and reinforced. This is our identity. We are a community of resident aliens. And the second question that Peter answers is where? Where are we? And this is the question of location. In verse 12, Peter tells us, he says, we live among the Gentiles. And by Gentiles, Peter just means non-Christians. This location is prescriptive. This is a command. It's not optional. We're called to live among the Gentiles. We are not to live cloistered lives. We're to be in the mix of our culture. And of course, every human culture is a complex mix of truth and deception, of goodness and evil, of beauty and of profanity, because it's human culture. And humans are amazing, and we're amazingly sinful. And this is where we are to live as resident aliens. This is our location. We're called to be in the mix and to be in the mess. We are to eat with and play with and build things with people who are not Christians. We are to live and we are to die among the Gentiles. And if this is true, and I think it is, I think that means we should take a serious look at how much of our time is spent among family and friends, amongst colleagues and neighbors and classmates who are not part of our community of faith. So the first two questions we went through pretty quickly. The third one we're going to spend a little bit more time in. The third question that Peter answers for us is how. As resident aliens, how should we live among the Gentiles? How should we engage with our culture? And Peter doesn't give us a program. Instead, what Peter gives us is a posture, what I'm going to call a posture of submission. And before we dig into this and look at this in more detail, I want to point out three unbiblical postures for cultural engagement. We're going to look at three ways not to engage our culture. And the first sort of bad way is revolution, coercing culture with violence. One example that comes to mind is January 6th. 
when Christian nationalists violently stormed the capital with the intention of transforming culture, cultural institutions by force. This is not the way of Jesus. And the second way not to engage our culture is withdrawal. And by withdrawal, I mean being closeted Christians, having a privatized faith. By withdrawal, I mean Christians who raise their hands in church on Sunday and then keep their heads down on Monday. Whether it's at work or in the classroom or in the neighborhood, there's nothing public about their faith. They're disengaged. They're withdrawn. This is not the way of Jesus. And the third way to not engage is assimilation. Assimilation is when Christians adopt the beliefs and behaviors of culture such that there is no longer any meaningful difference between the two. And here I think of the politicization of American Christianity. When a political party platform dictates the terms of your faith, you have assimilated. This is not the way of Jesus. And Christians have throughout history and they continue to this day to adopt each of these postures. And none of them are the way of Jesus. But Peter offers us a fourth way. And this is the way of submission. This is the way of Jesus. Twice in our passage and four times throughout the letter, Peter instructs Christians, all Christians, not just slaves, but everyone, to accept various cultural institutions and authorities and norms. And I think if we take a step back, I think we can distill a general mode of cultural engagement from this. Peter's telling the church to adopt a posture of submission within their cultural home. And now I know submission is a dangerous word. It's a very dangerous word. And to our shame, the church has all too often used this call to submission as a license for abuse. And that's wrong. And we need to be really careful when we talk about submission. So when Peter tells us to adopt this posture, this posture of submission, what does he mean? Well, submission means accepting or yielding to someone or something else. A posture of submission means that we humbly fit into our culture, but we do so faithfully. We do so without losing our distinctiveness. And in every culture, this looks a little bit different. In Rome, it meant accepting the authority structures, the norms of the Roman household as Christians. It meant submitting freely and faithfully, but without compromising the beliefs and the behaviors that the scriptures call us to. Here's how it might look in our culture, in America right now. I think we would probably all agree that our culture is one that is very quick to demonize the other, especially when it comes to politics. This has become a cultural norm for us in America. We vilify people who have different beliefs and who live different lifestyles. And one of the ways to grow your cultural capital in this country is to trash people on the other side, particularly on the other side of the political aisle. Well, submission in our pluralistic culture means, I think, 
that we are, free, we are free to be fully engaged in the democratic process. We're free to be passionate about our beliefs and our way of life. But as Christians, we must honor everyone. This, by the way, is one of the reasons why we pray for our leaders every Sunday as we gather for worship. We pray for our leaders whether or not we like them, whether or not we voted for them. This is how we honor everyone. As Christians, we must refuse to dishonor and to dehumanize people that we disagree with. And this doesn't mean we're never going to have enemies. We will. It just means even though we have enemies, we love them. That's what it looks like to be a resident alien in our culture. We love our enemies and we pray for them. As resident aliens, this is one of the ways that we fit in and also stick out in our culture. And I want to be clear, by calling us to this posture of submission, Peter is not telling Christians to be floor mats. He's not saying that we need to be rugs that people walk all over. In the book of Acts, Peter himself shows us that there are limits to submission. Or maybe put a little better, Peter shows us that submission is not always the same as obedience. We see this in Acts 5 when the authorities in Jerusalem arrested Peter and they commanded him to stop preaching about Jesus. Well, Peter doesn't just fall in line. He doesn't shut up about Jesus. What does he say? He says, we must obey God rather than men. As Christians, we are free to submit within our culture. We're free people. We're free to submit within our culture right up until the cultural expectations conflict with the commands of God. And when this happens, what we do is we humbly and we courageously disobey. And we accept the consequences of our disobedience. And sometimes it's easy to know what faithful submission looks like in our culture. And sometimes it's just really hard. Actually, most times it's really hard. And we shouldn't be surprised by this because culture is incredibly complex. I think our task as a spirit-filled community of resident aliens is to work out what this looks like together as we follow Jesus. So I know I've covered a lot of ground. I've said a lot. And I want to say just one more thing this morning. As we try to wrap our heads around this uncomfortable and radical call to submission, I want to end with the why behind this posture, the rationale behind why we should adopt this posture. And this is the final question that Peter answers in our passage. Why should we assume this posture of submission in our culture? And the answer is found in verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you should follow in his steps. Here's what he's saying. You've been called to this posture of submission, not for fear of Roman power, not because the Roman gods said to do it. You've been called to a life of submission 
Because Jesus lived a life of submission. This is how God reveals his love for the world. This is how God engages fallen, broken, sinful human culture. God didn't withdraw from us in our sinfulness. He sent his beloved son to us. Not with a mission of violent revolution, but with a mission of radical and humble and sacrificial love. He became a slave for us. Verse 22, Jesus committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was abused, he did not return abuse. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins so that free from sins, we might live for righteousness. Jesus lived a life of submission, not so that we wouldn't have to, but so that we could too. Jesus lived a life of submission so that we could live like him. And like him, we could bear witness to the love of God in our culture, in our time, and in our place. This is the reason for the posture of submission. And if it seems weak and foolish, well, that's because it is. At least as the world, at least as our culture might see it. But this is the way of Jesus. In our submission, in our weakness, in our foolishness, the power and the wisdom and the love of God is revealed in our time. And the Bible doesn't give us a list of rules for exactly how we are to do this. Instead, it calls us to model our lives on the life of Jesus. And it invites us into the hard work of learning to recognize his voice and learning to follow the voice of Jesus as we live among the Gentiles. And so with this in mind, I want to end by praying once again this morning's collect, which ties all of these things together so wonderfully for us. Let's pray. O God, whose Son, Jesus Christ, is the good shepherd of your people, grant that when we hear his voice, we may know him who calls us each by name and follow where he leads. Amen.